Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Kate and I are going to be discussing a paper titled Tack, Fit, and Use. And I know we have talked a lot about saddle fit, bridle fit, um, bits even. But I tell you, I just think you're constantly as a horse person learning um, every time you ride, you learn something new. And saddle fit is an evolution. It first, you're so consumed by the fit of the saddle alone that you forget about the rest of the horse or the rider and the asymmetry or um, lack of symmetry, I guess, that you may be dealing with. So this paper is by Hillary Clayton and Russell McKechnie Guire, which we've mentioned them before on the podcast. They have many, many research papers out. And I guess the key points would be that there's a variety of equipment used by riders to facilitate control of the horse, but it should fit correctly and be effective, yet not coercive. Signs of ill fit or misuse of equipment should be recognized and you should really get familiar with corrections of tack fitting problems because that's beneficial to you as the rider and then also to your horse. So I think one of the key takeaways um, for this paper, it's updated brand new paper just came out October 13th, 2022. And I was down at Southern Illinois University Carbondale doing a lecture and a lab on saddle fitting. And the head of the program down there, Stephanie, sent me a link to this paper afterwards. And it's so neat to see the evolution of this because at first you used to just focus on the saddle fit. Now you're looking at bridle fit, bit fit, and you're also looking at how the rider, as well as the type of girth you choose, changes the whole dynamics as the horse goes in motion. So thank you, Stephanie, for sending me this. Um, I will paste a link on the homepage and uh, it is accessible, open access for like six more weeks. So I'll also put a link up to this paper on our Facebook page so you can access it. Very well done paper with a lot of information. Yeah, it's broken down really nicely into the different sections. So if you did just want to kind of dip in and read about the saddle or dip in and read about the bridle, um, and I love that it's actually got like key bullet points after each one too. Really lovely laid out paper, like such an easy read, which is so important when getting this kind of information across. But, um, you know, there are just so many elements and 
this is, I love discussing this stuff with you, Nancy, because you've got such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to tack and particularly saddle fitting. But, you know, there are some things that definitely as a novice, I wouldn't have thought of. So like the symmetry of the horse's back and, and whether there's more muscle buildup on one side or the other. So that was something that I thought, I mean, it's, it makes sense, but I wouldn't have really applied it from my experience with horses. Yeah, one of the first things I do when I go to a saddle fitting is stand behind the horse. And I always make sure that the owner thinks the horse will be okay with that. And I use a mounting block to look at the shoulder symmetry. And there's always a little difference between a right or left shoulder. But in racehorses, there's quite a bit of difference. And I usually find that the left shoulder has much more bulk to it than the right shoulder. And that's because in this country, our racing track always turns to the left. So that shoulder is more developed. Now, this paper pointed out something that I had never thought of before. And it found that saddler height was a limiting factor with saddlers who were short in stature because they have more difficulty in assessing saddle fit from a bird's eye view. I never, ever thought to put the saddle on and then get on a mounting block to be able to look over and down at how that saddle is fitting. So um, that was interesting that for saddle fitters, either be a little taller to be able to look at that or as I use a step stool or mounting block, as long as the horse is okay with that, to um, have a look at that. And I thought that was really something that I had never thought of before. Definitely a new perspective on um, how to actually fit the saddles. Because you wouldn't think to look down straight from the top to see that we actually have the right um, shape and fit on both sides. Because they mention as well what we commonly call saddle slip, and that is associated with hind limb lameness. So that's where um, the rider will lean to one side and the saddle will then start to move to that side. And it's that hind leg. So whatever side the rider is leaning more towards, that hind leg is going to have the lameness. Um, but then, you know, there are ways that you can compensate for that. But what I was wondering actually is, they mention, you know, you need to allow for shape changes of the horse, which we've mentioned in previous podcasts when we've talked about saddle, you know, your kinds of spring, summer, heavier pony compared to your winter pony where they might be naturally coming down in weight. But they also mention shape, allowing for shape changes of the rider too, which I thought was really interesting. So when you're fitting saddles, Nancy, do you have the rider get up on them as well to watch how that dynamic works? You know what I do? I first put the saddle on without a pad or anything and just assess if the panels uh, fit the shape of the back of that horse because you can have a pedestal panel, you can have a banana panel and certain back shapes 
are indicative of what panel might work the best for that horse. So when I first do that phase of the saddle fitting, I know pretty much if this saddle is going to work on this horse or not. And even though you look at the withers and you're trying guess for a tree size, it also involves making sure the tree points match the slope of your horse's withers and shoulder. So having that saddle on without a pad kind of tells you if it's going to work or not. So if it looks good, then I go ahead and girth the saddle up without a pad. Now, sometimes a saddle can fit perfect when you just set it on their back, but then once you girth it up, it doesn't fit anymore. You will see the front rise up if it's too narrow or if it's too wide, the front will go down and the back will come up. So there's a lot that can tell you um, right away if you need to move on to a different saddle. If it does all work and the girthing looks good and the saddle looks balanced, there's no bridging or anything, then you can go ahead and put the pad between the saddle and um, the horse. And usually at that point, if everything's looking really good, I only use a thin pad that can keep dirt and sweat from infiltrating the leather on that saddle. And would you recommend then that people are consistent with the same pads they use every time? Um, yeah, now that can change with seasons. Like you said earlier, if your horse gains a little weight or loses a little weight, you might want to uh, take up a little more room by adding a little thicker pad or you, you know, say it's going into winter and you've got kind of a chubby pony you continue with the thinnest pad you can because you know the winter is going to take off some weight. Um, I firmly am a believer there's no such thing as a custom saddle because of the seasonal changes of the horse and they're a living and breathing entity that's constantly changing, um, whether it's exercise or lack thereof, um, their back muscles and um their whole dynamic can change as they age. I did think as well when they mentioned the rider in relation to this, you know, there's obviously limitations with what we can do because we can get a great saddle fit, but if it's on a trekking pony or a, mm-hmm. um, a pony that's used in like a riding school, then you're really limited because you're going to have people of different abilities on that saddle, which is going to have a knock-on effect to what pressure points are rubbed. But in this, they did use um, a pressure sensor and they've done a really nice like little digital image of what that looks like, whether the saddle is a correct fit or whether it's too narrow or if it's too wide. And you can see like in both the narrow and the wide, um, we've got more pressure points lighting up as red. So there's a significant pressure there, but particularly in the narrow, it seems to drive more um, of a response on the pressure pad. So yeah. I just thought that was really interesting as well, because 
we do, you know, we do have our horses bulk out a little bit at different times of the year. So that saddle that was a perfect fit could all of a sudden become narrow. And we maybe need to be a little bit more conscious of that and how we compensate for it. And yeah. if our horse has that cyclical kind of, you know, they're they're just a good doer in the spring. It's not necessarily that we need to weight control them. It's just they are putting on that little bit more in the spring. Yeah, and, you know, I do my last stage of the saddle fitting is fitting the rider to the saddle. And so the underneath of the saddle, you're fitting the horse to, and then the top side of the saddle, you're fitting the rider to. Now, the difference is the twist. So you're fitting a twist also to the horse. And you want to make sure that gullet is wide enough to where when the horse goes into a corner, that gullet's not coming up across putting pressure on top the spine so you want the pressure or the support to always be along the spinal musculature not the bony part of the spine so um, I always uh, look at leg the flap should frame the leg like a picture frame and if the knee is over a flap or the flap is too long for the rider's leg, uh, you have to consider all that because all of that will influence how the rider rides that horse and pressure points that the horse may feel. So the narrow, I always say you can't fix narrow. You can't pad. You can't fix it you can't it's kind of like us we can't wear jeans that do not fit us that are too tight it's just too uncomfortable and creates pressure points uh, why though I do say if you're having a little bit of a wider saddle you can use a pad that would be thicker to help compensate until your horse puts on a little more top line or a little more weight, wherever the issue is. That's great advice. Mm -hmm. um, with it as well, Nancy, have you seen many treeless saddles? Because I read in this that they found people kind of moving towards using treeless saddles because they think they're actually like kinder or more comfortable, but actually the treeless saddles were causing more pressure. I, I have never used a treeless saddle, even in racing our little exercise saddles have a partial tree in them because they do create more pressure and I know in you know ponies especially they recommend or they used to recommend treeless saddles or hoop tree um, saddles which have a more rounder rather than b-shaped tree in them um, and you just have to be very careful because any Thing can create pressure in other areas. So um, you can't get rid of a pressure point, but you can redirect it. So um, that's sometimes worse than having an ill-fitting tree is to be redirecting pressure points to another location. So it's kind of an art and a science. And I myself would never use a treeless saddle because of the current research that says um, they create a worse pressure points than what the treed saddles do. 
I think you kind of hit the nail on the head by saying it's an art and a science mm-hmm. because I think there's obviously the science element to it, but it's experience of doing it and fitting saddles and seeing many different fits to actually know, you know, have a keen eye to know what you're working with and what you're doing. Well, um, so the importance of having someone experienced to actually help you with that. Well, and you know, like you brought up saddle slip and the best way to determine if the saddle is slipping because of the horse's anatomy or because of lameness is they had said that you can determine that by putting the saddle on without a rider and see if it continues to slip to one side while walking in a straight line. And so I thought I had never seen that advice before because I know a lot of people experience saddle slip. And the one thing you do not want to do is tighten the girth tighter. Yes. And I've seen that with elastic girths. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think, well, they're not tightening the girth tight enough. And that's not the answer. That can actually torque the muscles and they're called intercostal muscles along the rib, if you consistently tighten over and over and over on the left side of the horse, those muscles will be torqued and there'll be pain there along those ribs. So um, one thing uh, uh, I always recommend is to get If you use an elastic girth, make sure it has elastic on both sides and maybe switch off what side you tighten up on. So I usually go back and forth. I'll do left, then right, then right, then left and kind of switch it up so I'm not constantly uh, pulling up on just the left side. So you can switch that up and, and it'll help the horse out. Do you mean tighten every second one on each side when you say switch it off? Yeah, like do your final tightening before you get on. Uh, Most people do it on the left side because they get on the left side. But change it up and go to the right side and tighten up and then come over and get on. But the way I do my girth is I go ahead and tighten left or right, and then I go to the other side and go up a hole. And I do it one hole at a time. And then before I get on, I'll usually do the final tighten. You know, if I run my finger along there and it feels a little loose, I will go ahead and take it up one more time. So um, another thing I would recommend is people make sure you have a large enough girth, but not too large. Because um, sometimes people, especially starting in spring, a horse might be in a 48 inch girth. And then by the end of summer, they put on weight. So they may be in a 52. Well, don't try um, stretching that 48 up to the billets because you're actually pulling on those intercostal muscles. So make sure that you have a variety of girths to fit your seasons. Um, The other point then in this, I think that was everything I had actually for the um, saddles. I'm 
the yeah. point I'm thinking of now is moving on to bridals. Was that everything you had, Nancy? Yeah. Um, the only thing is they recommended that if your horse is not lame and your saddle is still slipping, it could be a muscle problem and you could implement an exercise program um, that would maybe involve flexibility and strengthening on the side that the saddle is slipping on. And I was impressed that they brought that up because I think um, also the riders should consider their own asymmetry and how it may mm -hmm. be affecting things. So that's the last point I had. Brilliant. Um, kind of <laughs> along the same lines of when we were talking about padding with the saddle, padding in bridles is something that was mentioned in this study as well. And I found this really interesting because I've seen padded bridles, but the ones I have seen would definitely be more like, almost like a leather padding on the inside, like um, what they would call in this a firm padding. And what they've pointed out is that actually this kind of firm padding is much less effective. Um, it doesn't actually do a whole lot. It doesn't dampen any force of the bridle. So that any padding on a bridle should be very easily indented by just pressing it with your finger. So it should give way very easily. Um, and they showed examples then of the padding on the bridles and how that, they have some nice pictures of how it kind of alleviates pressure over certain points of the face, which I thought was brilliant. And then they had as well that curved, um, bridal for behind the ears and I'm sure we've mentioned that in our bridal fit one before as well yeah because they say horses are really sensitive to if that bridle um, leans forward into the back of the ear that that's a very uh, pressure point oriented um, you know I guess pain point or pressure point that really irritates the horse um, and that's a good point too, Kate, about that uh, padding, because um, I've got to check my bridles to make sure I, I have sufficient padding, because I didn't realize how some horses could have that facial crest and that mm -hmm. TMJ joint uh, be more prominent than other horses. So you've got to make sure that cheek piece is not so wide that it interferes with that facial crest. I thought that was a good point they brought up. Yeah, and I love coming back to the TMJ joint because, um, or the TMJ. So it's the temporomandibular joint and it's where that massive lower jaw joins to the upper part of the skull. And there is so much constant movement in this joint. Like that every time the horse is chewing and grinding, um, it's just forever moving. And they can get um, osteoarthritis in that area. So in our older horses, it's really important that we don't have any bridles that are pressing on that, causing more discomfort. And even if you are using a bitless bridle, because in these horses, a bitless bridle would be better to reduce jaw pressure if they do have osteoarthritis of that TMJ. But even using a bitless bridle, you still need to make sure that you either have enough padding or that the bridle's fitted in such a way that you're not exerting pressure over that joint there. Because then you will start to see, and um, we call it napping behaviors. I don't know if you, I think I've asked you this before, Nancy, if you call it napping too, when horses like basically do anything but what you want them to do in a rising lesson 
Um, or those discomfort behaviors. Yeah, and especially they said like um, the rider's response is to over tighten the nose band to keep the mouth closed. And that's the opposite thing to do, which is so comparable to over tightening the girth for mm -hmm. saddle slippage. It, it's that they, um, that's a discomfort behavior. And they said horses that habitually open their mouths and ridden are likely to be suffering intraoral pain or discomfort. So check the bars, check your lip commissores, and um, check just your bit fit to make sure it's not too small or too big. And um, check that the bridle is not on any bony surface of the horse's head, that it's on soft tissue. And they mentioned as well that there's a high pressure area. So they used small pressure mats and found that there's high pressure areas where those brow bands join the headpiece. Um, and if you haven't listened to our podcast on that, it's a great topic. So the use of brow bands in horses and whether we really necessarily need them because there are so many styles of riding that doesn't use a brow band. Yeah, and I think the brow band is to stabilize the bit in a um, horse's mouth. So if you have a really well-trained horse, um, you know, you probably, that's how Western riders just have the bridle over an ear to stabilize it. But in racing, of course, we need the brow band because mm -hmm. we need that control but I thought it was so interesting that they did the fluoroscope of the bits in the horse's mouth. And when I first got my pony, she would ride in a snaffle bit. And I changed her out to a double jointed snaffle with a small link. And I went a little size larger. And I tell you what, it made all the difference in the world in how she rides she will almost ride on a totally loose rein she likes just that little contact that i'm kind of holding her hand and so if you access this paper look at the fluoroscope images because it shows how close to the palate those bits can uh, come to the roof of their mouth and how the double jointed leaves a lot more space. Yeah, and they mentioned as well that some horses obviously will play excessively um, with the bit and move it up and down in their mouth and even grasp it between their teeth. But they found this was especially so when using jointed bits and um, mm -hmm. unjointed mouthpieces will lie higher on the tongue. So they have less mobility around the mouth. But they did say that there should be about one centimeter wider than the distance between the lip commissures. So the bit should yeah. have that extra space either side and just a small wrinkle present in the skin. I don't know, Nancy, if you had the same saying, because we used to look for three wrinkles. Yep, on the um, when we fit is a bit. And if it was a tough one to gallop, I wanted four wrinkles. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say three to four, and then I was like, I don't know if that was right. <laughs> it, it, it was, and I have seen a difference. I mean, um, the sometimes they'll get these little BB-shaped or P-shaped uh, calluses 
at the corner of their lips. And that's pretty indicative of a too small a bit for their mouth or too much pressure, rain pressure over time. So ideally you want a nice soft mouth, especially in those corners and you don't want um, ulcers along the bars. So you, we did an episode on that, that uh, there was a large percentage of event horses that had ulcers in their mouth after an event. And, you know, I will put a link to that episode um, on our homepage this week, because that would be a good one to revisit to help you evaluate your bridle and bit fit. Yeah, and they mentioned ported curb bits. I'm not sure, Nancy, if you'd be able to explain what a ported curb bit was, but they found that using those were 75 times more likely to have lesions on the bar um, and that these basically just caused more problems overall when they were used like bruises, ulcers, bone spurs. Um, I, I guess the curb bit is just an unjointed bit. It's, is that just our straight bar? Well, it, it mainly a curb bit uses like a, a chin strap on it. So whereas a lot of times I never use a chin strap, I never even use a chin strap on the racetrack. So in my discipline, um, I think it's more Western oriented or polo ponies, I think where um, might have that for more control. But um, sometimes it's even a chain along the chin. So, um, you know, fortunately, I've, I've had horses that have responded in mild bits. But like I always say, even a mild bit can be severe in the wrong mm -hmm. hands. So I always have been one to try and ride more with my seat than with my hands. And I think um, it's a, a another factor that horsemanship is art and science. So uh, I'm not real familiar with curb bits. Uh, I know the ports, um, you know, I've seen them in more Western disciplines than I have in English disciplines. And that ties in nicely with um, the point they made in this that, you know, the force that's used, coercive writing techniques aren't condoned. So you know, we have mentioned that before. The lightest restraint is dangerous in the wrong hands. And um, I suppose it's kind of the way that I would always voice it. So even if you have, you know, the nicest padded bridle and you've made sure you've got correctly fitting bit and there's no pressure points, once you get up, if you're exerting force, then you're changing that whole dynamic. Yep, yep. And always let your horse tell you whether it's saddle fit or bridle fit, if you listen, they'll let you know if they're in discomfort or something isn't right. One of the last things I had on bits actually was I had never heard of a sweet iron bit before. <laughs> and I was wondering if you'd seen one. So they were saying the sweet iron bits uh, develop a blue color after heating to around 300 degrees Celsius. And then any contact with air and humidity will rust the surface of the bit, giving it a sweet taste. So it encourages horses to salivate. And the very last sentence was the iron released by these bits is below toxicity levels for horses. 
So that made me think of your paper, Nancy, and whether this is something that was being used on the race course to get a bit more iron into the horses. <laughs> I thought the same thing as I didn't ask about bits when I did yeah. that research, you know, but I have seen these. I have never, never used them. Um, you know, they say the same thing about the um, happy bits that supposedly have an apple flavor to them. But for thoroughbreds, uh, I was would think it would encourage more chewing mm -hmm. than what you would want. They already ch chomp at the bit enough, you know, so I've never used anything like that. But um, I don't know. I, I, I'm glad they checked that toxicity of iron, though. <laughs> <laughs> So, but that, I thought the same thing, Kate, I thought, oh, I didn't even know about that, that it released iron. So, but anyway, um, I try not to buy into the, um, fads, yeah. or, you know, the quick fixes, because there's so much, uh, training that you can do in cognitive development of your horse that I think it's more fun in it makes more of a partnership than just throwing on a piece of equipment that kind of um, coerces them into mm -hmm. doing what you want. So I'm not really a person to, to buy into the fads and all that. But, um, you know, if any listener has used a sweet bit or a sweet iron bit, let us know what you think and, and what the response was on your horse. And um, we'll, you know, we'll read your response on the next program. Um, I think that's a great point. It'd be interesting to see what experience people have had using different, because I know, you know, it's not a one size fits all. And there are certain bits of tack that suit some horses better than others. And especially when you've got horses that are, champing at the bit or horses that are very strong heads. Um I think when it comes to racing, I can't imagine how they're just so flighty, so fast, so strong. Um I know what ridden ponies for my my experience, I guess, would lie. Um retraining is just a great, a great technique. Like if you have a horse that's really headstrong, try and retrain instead of uh, fighting using tack because that tends to be, you know, we can retrain using positive reward methods to encourage them to do what we're asking or even to understand what we're asking because sometimes it's just a breakdown in communication between us and them and we're trying to deliver a message through a technique that can then be coercive. So um, the final point in this paper is if you do suspect your horse is suffering from pain related to the bit or the bridle um, or the saddle, evaluate the fit with the tack adjusted in the customary manner and get a qualified bit and bridle fitter or saddle fitter and consult them if you're not confident in this area. And I would say unless you are a qualified bit bridle fitter or saddle fitter, then you should just get one for the first. I mean, they will talk you through it. And um, it's, and as me and Nancy have just pointed out, it's forever changing. So if this is something, you know, if you got some advice 10 years ago, it's going to have changed again. 
Yeah. And this equipment for horses, I mean, look at all the tack companies and the catalogs we get. Sometimes the equipment doesn't function as it's advertised. So you always should evaluate it on an individual basis. What's going to work for you and your horse and, and decide that way. Don't just let the catalog pages entice you. I'm a sucker for the catalog. So. <laughs> I <do too. laughs> um, great. That's everything that I had for today. Did you rent anything else, Nancy? Nope, that's it. You said it so well um, with the uh, final point. And uh, if anybody has any questions or research they want us to do, I've been sent quite a few papers um, and we'll just go through them one at a time, but keep sending them in and then uh, we'll be back next week. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Take care, Nancy. Okay, you too. Thank you, Kate. Bye-bye.